We're driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search, match with Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Leveraging over 140 million qualifications and preferences every day, Indeed's matching engine is constantly learning from your preferences. Join more than 3.5 million businesses worldwide that use Indeed to hire great talent fast. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Just go to Indeed.com slash BlueWire right now and support our show by saying you heard about Indeed on this podcast. Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. This podcast episode is brought to you by Coors Light. These days, everything is go, go, go. It's nonstop hustle all the time. Work, friends, family expect you to be on 24-7. Well, sometimes you just need to reach for a Coors Light because it's made to chill. Coors Light is cold lagered, cold filtered, and cold packaged. It's as crisp and refreshing as the Colorado Rockies. It is literally made to chill. Coors Light is the one I choose when I need to unwind. So when you want to hit reset, reach for the beer that's made to chill. Get Coors Light in the new look delivered straight to your door with Drizzly or Instacart. Celebrate responsibly. Coors Brewing Company, Golden, Colorado. The Timeline is a Blue Wire podcast. I'm I'm just going to give you all a statement. Until we learn how to play the right way consistently... We're just going to have a lot of nights like this. That's that's the deal. Until we learn how to play the right way consistently and follow a game plan, we're going to play well one night, and we're going to have nights like this. Play well one night, have nights like this. Play well one night, have nights like this. Until we learn how to play the right way, follow a game plan consistently, we're going to have nights. Welcome to the timeline of Phoenix Suns podcast. Sam Cooper, how are you doing? I'm doing uh, okay, Mike, now that I think about it. It's been a funny week, I think, to be a Suns fan, um, if you've been kind of tracking what's going on online, um, because it felt like we were building towards some sort of momentum with a couple of wins there, uh, and then people kind of lost their shit last night <laughs> after that loss. Um, I think because, you know, this is the easiest stretch of the season for the Suns in the schedule right now. And as a result, kind of if they want to fight for the eighth seed, every single game feels that much more critical. Uh, so to to drop a game like that, there were some interesting takes online yesterday and really mm-hmm. over the past few days that we can talk about. Yeah, we're, we're recording this on Monday night. So what Sam is talking about is the Grizzlies game where uh, all of the Grizzlies players basically ignored Aaron Baines' presence entirely because John Morant emasculated him so much. The last time the Grizzlies played against the Suns, they showed no fear of Aaron Baines, and it was a lot of bad defense and a lot of Baton, what what I've been calling Baton. We're going to be hating on Baton today, I think. The Baines Aiton lineup combination is has started two games in a row now. We have not recorded a podcast since we've seen that pretty significantly compared to previous. I think they played around a little bit with that lineup uh, in the past. 
It's interesting. What what do you think about the <laughs> Aiton Baines lineup? I think we're going to have an extended conversation on this. Yeah, I, look, I think that's what everyone is, is most interested in right now. And I want to say off the bat, I don't hate this lineup. I would prefer that it hadn't started the past two games, but I think a lot of the opinions I've seen online have kind of been based more in fear than they have in fact. Uh, And and frankly, I think a lot of people are kind of seeing what they want to see with that lineup. Here's what we know about the Suns starting Aiton and Baines together. They've started the past two games against the Knicks and Grizzlies. They've played together in a total of four games now, because even in another couple of games earlier on uh, in this season, uh, Monty elected to go with some lineups uh, with Aiton and Baines together at the same time. So far, when Aaron Baines uh, and DeAndre Aiton share the floor, the Suns have a plus 5.5 net rating. That's per 100 possessions. That is in a very small sample size of 37 minutes. So traditionally, you wouldn't take a sample size uh, of such little playing time uh, and really expect to extract significant data out of it. But what it at least tells us so far is that that lineup has not been awful. And that lineup was not the reason the Suns were down by 20 points at the end of the third quarter against the Memphis Grizzlies last night. I think if you were online during the game, the experience you probably had was that a lot of people were scapegoating uh, the pairing of Aiton and Baines. And, you know, as we kind of talk about it, Mike, I think it doesn't work uh, long term and isn't sustainable long term for a number of reasons. Um, But the Suns continue as a whole, as a collective unit, to have way bigger problems beyond that. Um, and way more problems as to why they're losing games that I could go into as well. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I, I agree with that. I, but I I do kind of hate it. I, I think that plus 5.5 net rating is, it's a stat and it's interesting. And I think it's so affected by, there was some stretches uh, in the next game where, where they just played really well with that lineup. And I don't know, I just, I think that if, first I will say, I guess I should frame it this way. Let's quickly talk about Dario Saric losing some some playtime here because the first thing I did when I was thinking about this and preparing for this podcast was try to look up to see if I could understand why Dario has fallen out of the rotation almost entirely. He played some minutes, but it's not a lot. Um, so I looked into some advanced stats, and over the last 10 games, Saric actually has the worst defensive rating on the court of anyone on the team. Uh, worse than the rookies, his uh, defensive rating was 120 points, uh, essentially 120, which is really bad, and an offensive rating of 106. So overall, the actual differential was negative 19.6. This is this is pretty bad. But what's been interesting about the Dario Saric experience so far is we've seen him play but not with Aiton at all I think the idea of bringing him in in the beginning was Dario and Aiton can be the starting front court and we can see them play together we really haven't seen that we've only seen them play 35 minutes together and in that lineup where they played together when they played with Devin Booker it was a plus 15 and when they played without Devin Booker it was a minus 11 so Mm -hmm. Devin Booker obviously making that same uh, impact that he has on the rest of the offense essentially so it's it's really impossible to judge that because it's just not enough minutes yeah but it does appear that Dario Saric was playing kind of badly over the course of the last 10 games something I think that fell under the radar for me a little bit statistically that's kind of what it says I think it has a little bit to do with when he's been deployed in some of these games recently as well. Sort of, you know, like I've said it before, the biggest impact on net rating is the coach because of when he plays you and who he plays you with. 
will have the largest impact on net ratings, especially in, in small sample sizes. But uh, Dario, kind of not great. And so I do kind of understand sort of looking for a solution there. But the big thing for me is Baines is not playing great defense and he's not shooting very well. And if you put somebody next to DeAndre Ayton who's not shooting very well, that's a problem offensively already. But the main reason you would do that is because the defense would improve. And Baines has not been protecting the rim very well lately either. So exactly. I, yeah, I'm just not very happy with it. And at first I thought, and I will, sorry, I'm going on a tangent here. At first I thought, well, the, the reason they're doing this is because Baines is hitting threes. And if Baines is hitting threes, functionally, he is as big as a center, but he can play like a power forward. Um, he's not really hitting threes. But once I saw minutes with Diallo and Ayton on the court together in the last game, it became more clear that the goal was to make Ayton a power forward in these lineups. And I just don't see any scenario where making DeAndre Ayton a power forward for this team is better for the team. He has to be a center to really be as good as it can be. And I haven't really changed on that. I don't know if your, your feeling has has changed at all after you've seen it play, but it just it, it, it made me feel kind of icky. I didn't enjoy it. Yeah, no, I, offensively about DeAndre Ayton, I think that's definitely true. Look, first, I think we need to look at the matchups. Um, so far, because we only have a two-game sample size, uh, I think that Monty has been going with decent matchups to this point. You have to think about uh, Memphis was starting Jaron Jackson Jr. He's a seven-foot, 240-pound power forward up against DeAndre Ayton. It kind of maybe makes Look, I wouldn't have done it, but it kind of maybe makes sense to have DeAndre Ayton do that matchup. It makes sense for Ayton to match up in the previous game with the Knicks uh, against Julius Randle, who is a similarly built uh, big power forward who likes to bang a little bit in the post as well as take those outside shots and at least attempt to space the floor. Going up uh, into these next games in the next couple of weeks, there are going to be some interesting matchups where it could potentially look laughable if DeAndre Ayton continues to start a power forward. You know, if Ayton starts a power forward matched up against a quick, athletic, almost small ball four like Aaron Gordon of the Orlando Magic who are coming up on the schedule, that might look very different. But for now, um, I think at least uh, Monty can kind of hide behind the defensive. He's playing to matchups. And at least against the Knicks, it worked. You know, they pulled out the win. And DeAndre Ayton was also a plus uh, in the box score in both games. But more specifically, I think this was a, a move kind of geared towards the Suns' defense. And I think particularly in the next game, what was impressive about an Aiton and Baines lineup is how much separation it creates for Devin Booker off screens. And we really have seen Devin Booker continue to do very well working out of the mid-range, as you know Eddie Johnson loves to call attention to uh. Uh, over this past stretch. We'll get to that later. Don't worry. But Devin Booker in the past two games, 38 points against the Knicks, 40 points against the Grizzlies, um, and really the amount of separation that you can create with those two bigs on the floor uh, at the same time is definitely impressive. Here's the obvious drawback. It puts heavy pressure on Booker to do absolutely everything offensively. Because, you know, if you compare DeAndre Ayton at power forward versus Dario Saric at power forward, Ayton is not as willing to attack closeouts uh, when he gets the ball on the perimeter. He's not willing to take that shot uh, in the first place when catching on the perimeter. So you have a situation where if Devin Booker's off, which we haven't seen yet, that could potentially lead to catastrophic offensive results. Yeah, I... I don't know. How do you feel about Dario losing minutes? Because right. here's, here's the thing about Dario Saric. Even though when I looked at the last 10 games, the stats were very bad for him, the worst defensive rating on the team was a huge surprise to me. Personally, I figured it would be uh, either Tyler Johnson or Ty Jerome. Now, Ty Jerome hasn't gotten a lot of minutes in the last 10, 10 games, so that's partially probably why. 
but it being Dario Saric was a big surprise to me. Now, just going eye test beyond that, I feel like Dario deserves to start in general because there's just, if you look at the full year and not just the last 10 games, he's played relatively well. He's one of the guys that has a positive differential when he's on the court. He uh, he can pass. He's more versatile uh, than Baines. He can pass. He can shoot. He can drive. He can post up a little bit and defensively hasn't been bad. Not a rim protector. And I think this is the main, if we're trying to learn the thoughts of Monty Williams, they're trying to not make uh, Aiton be a rim protector. They're trying to pair him with a rim protector, if we really think about this. And, and that may be why he's lost minutes. But I just don't think it's really the right decision to to kind of banish him. He didn't play at all in the first half of the last game and only played yep. a little bit in the second half. I just don't think that we've gotten to that point with him yet. This is a team that we've talked about this for weeks now that is uh, one of the worst teams in the NBA converting wide-open three-point opportunities percentage-wise. Now, if you take uh, the law of averages and look at large, large samples and go back seasons and seasons to really look at uh, which players you're confident in their three-point shot-making ability and which players you're not so confident. Uh, you know, Aaron Baines opened out the, the season phenomenally well. He doesn't have as much of a sample to say that he's a good shooter as opposed to a guy like Dario Saric, who's been around the block a little bit long. He hasn't literally been around the block longer, but he's been shooting threes for a longer amount of time. So, you know, even if Dario Saric has struggled to this point this season and may only be shooting 33% from deep right now, um, by that large sample size, I would be more willing to to say that he is a good three-point shooter. In fact, I would probably be willing to go out on a limb and say, um, even with the season he's had, Dario is the third best three-point shooter on this team given, um, well, just behind, I guess, Cam Johnson and Devin Booker, if I had to guess. You know, that's where I put him. So to answer your question, I think Dario should absolutely be playing right now. Now, should he be starting? I think, honestly, you could go the other way and um, point to guys like Kelly Oubre and Mikhail Bridges, who have been playing phenomenally well, and, and maybe even think about starting Kelly at the four and bringing in Bridges, who's been such an impactful player on both ends of the floor recently, um, at the three. But Dario absolutely has to be part of your rotation. He should at least be playing 20 to 25 minutes per game. And if there's anyone in this rotation that you look at right now and think we have to slash his minutes, to me, that's Aaron Baines, clearly. Because he was brought in to do two things, um, knock down threes at a high level uh, and defend and protect the rim. And as of the past month or so, he's just struggling in both of those areas to the point where uh, it, you're really not getting much uh, return by playing yeah. both him and eight and 30 plus minutes a game. It just doesn't make sense. Baines is very tall and he currently has a, in the last 10 games, a field goal percentage of 43% and a three point percentage of 25%. And that's in a 10 game period. He's making one out of every four three pointers. That's not sustainable next to Deandre Ayton. And it's just curious to me because the quotes after this game now, Aiton has hinted at playing power forward in the past. He said that's where he feels natural because he grew up playing power forward. But after the first game where they started them both at uh, two centers on the court, he really went in on how much he enjoys playing power forward and how he wants to get out there and defend on the perimeter. And, you know, it just makes me wonder if, if part of the reason they're playing him at power forward is because of his influence on that and how, how much he's expressed a desire to play power forward. It just doesn't look good. If you think about DeAndre Ayton, he's not shooting threes, right? We don't have to get into that again, but he's not shooting threes. And that means that he's going to have to play inside the arc. And if he plays inside the arc, the idea of the .5 system, which is now gone, 
is that there's only one guy inside the arc at a time. That was a huge part of the offense that was so successful early in the season. If he's never shooting threes, the person next to him in the front court has to make them. They have to make them. And that that almost supersedes defense to me because of how ugly it can be offensively. The, the marginal difference between what Aaron Baines is right now and what Dario was before he was banished from the rotation is made up for by the difference in three-point shooting. But I will say the, the main solution that I would like, if we're going to ban uh, Dario from starting, it has to me, it has to be Mikhail Bridges. Mikhail Bridges, he's gotten very good. By the way, this is our first episode in 2020 so we now are able to talk about his shot Yeah, we haven't even hey we haven't even mentioned that yet <laughs> i i just like to point out uh mikhail bridges is now shooting 36 percent on wide open threes which is actually better than devin booker so mikhail bridges on wide open threes Hell is yeah. shooting better than Hell devin yeah. booker now let me just use that stat as the first stat in my mikhail bridges monologue here real quick in the last 10 games Mikhail Bridges has a net differential of plus 18.5. The next highest on the team is Tyler Johnson at just plus 6.6. Just going to repeat that. Mikhail Bridges plus 18.5. The next highest is Tyler Johnson at plus 6.6. Now you can say, okay, but if they start us, if they go small, because this is small, I know he's long, but he's not exactly strong and he's not exactly a rebounder in the traditional sense. But the Suns have an average rebounding percentage of 49.1%. But the lineups with Ubre and Bridges, which is the two guys that would play forwards, actually have a higher rebounding percentage or rebounding rate than that at 50.1%. Now, obviously, that is probably matchup related. They're probably not playing a lot of Ubre and Bridges together at the forward positions against massive teams. But if you compare Bind Bridges and Aiton together in the minutes that they've played, it's 54%. So it's a higher rebounding rate than the entire uh, team has averaged so far this season. What do you think about Mikhail Bridges starting? So this would be a starting lineup of Ricky Rubio, Devin Booker, Mikhail Bridges, Kelly Oubre, and DeAndre Aiton. Yeah, I, I don't mind it, Mike. Um, really, it's kind of splitting hairs between him and Dario. I think the point is to get away from this current starting lineup that they're using. Because to go back to Dario for a second, uh, the kind of unfortunate thing about the season he's had is that, uh, in theory, he's this versatile, modern stretch four who has all these uh, different skills in his toolkit. And he's never quite put them all together at the same time in the same game. But the potential there is that if he does... Uh, that's just such a dangerous weapon to have. You started out the season and Dario was actually shooting quite well from deep for the first 10 games or so while the Suns were winning games. And then as his shot started to go away from him, uh, the other things started to come along. He started the season as a very poor finisher. The finishing uh, touch from inside of six feet started to come back to him. Uh, His rebounding became very, very good just before this uh, most recent stretch of games to the point where I think, you know, at one point in the the month of December, I don't have the exact stats pulled in front of me, um, but it was quite common for Dario to be pulling out, um, pulling down eight or nine rebounds every single game. Um, And so I think if he could theoretically put all of that stuff together... You talked about what Aaron Baines was saying about DeAndre Ayton after the game. I have a quote right here where Baines was talking about how Ayton, uh, and I'm going to quote, draws so much focus offensively that it collapses the defense. Uh, So I'm just trying to tell him to keep going down, roll, seal, and I'll work off him. That's my job is to go out there and be in the right spacing and give him the opportunity to go work in the post. If there's anyone who can do that, 
um, out of the guys that we're talking about who can potentially compete for that starting spot, it's Dario Saric who can go out and give him that spacing um, and have Aiton's kind of inside gravity speak for itself. So that's not a knock on Mikhail Bridges. I'm just saying that I'm still a big believer in Dario uh, and his ability to put all those skills together. But to talk about Mikhail, whether or not he starts, he should be in the top six uh, in this rotation. you know. So if he's not literally starting, he should be the sixth guy, not necessarily the first off the bench. That's always matchup dependent. He's not a sixth man prototype, but he should be getting 25 to 30 minutes per game because of the impact he has defensively. And I've tweeted it out throughout this week. Um, the Suns lineups that they've rolled out in limited minutes where they have Cam Johnson, Mikhail Bridges, and Kelly Oubre all on the court at the same time continue to be, uh, continue to be excuse me, very successful. So I'd like to continue to see them uh, use those as well. Here's why I think it has to be Mikhail Bridges um, at this point. If you're starting Devin Booker and DeAndre Ayton, that's two bad defenders. And, you know, as as much as we'd like to talk about I don't, uh, De- DeAndre Ayton I don't getting quite, better at defense. I don't quite agree. Well, here's what I'll say. He makes a lot of dumb mistakes still. He does. He does. He does. He, he just does. And I will say, when he's there, when he's in the right positioning, he does well contesting shots. But often, he will still get lost in all of the fray. In fact, uh, um, Brendan uh, for Brightside just wrote a great article breaking down some of the defensive lapses that he had in the last game. And when you start both of those guys, now as much, as, as much potential that DeAndre Ayton has defensively, Devin Booker is never quite going to be an excellent defender. He might be average, and that's all you need from him. Mikhail Bridges makes up for a lot of those mistakes. He just does. He blows up a lot of plays on his own. He, he, can, he, can, he can help off the ball. He's excellent in pick-and-roll defense when he's on the ball. And if you're starting both of those guys, you kind of need somebody that's going to make up for those mistakes because they're going to happen on a regular basis. And Dario Saric doesn't have the physical capabilities of doing that. Kelly Oubre does, but he's prone to ball watching as well. Uh, so it just feels like th- this is, I will say this, the best solution is that Dario Saric plays better, yeah, right? He just plays well. Uh, but with the players that we have on this team currently, it just feels like Mikhail Bridges is the best in those lineups. And, and it just kind of, there hasn't been a lot of minutes. I did look up that starting lineup that I said, there hasn't been a lot of minutes, but it does have the best net rating of any five-man lineup uh, on the Suns at a plus 52.3. It's only been used for 22 minutes. It's been played in five games but it's only been used for 22 mm-hmm. minutes. So that's With, not a lot. It probably means nothing, but it just it makes sense to me scheme-wise. Again, I think we're, we're splitting hairs, but it's a trade-off. The positive of starting Bridges and Ubre together, I think, is obvious. You play the passing lanes, uh, you get deflections, you have better defense. That turns into transition opportunities. The potential negative is... Uh, you know, one thing schematically that the Suns do a lot that they can't do with DeAndre Ayton at center is how many times this season have we seen either Frank Kaminsky or Dario Saric or Aaron Baines run side pick and roll uh, off the wing or even sometimes from the top of the key where they then pop out to the three uh, and take that shot to create that gravity. That's not something that we've ever really seen Mikhail Bridges do. It's not something that we see Kelly Oubre do either because they're so used to kind of playing small forward that, you know, they play the small ball position sometimes, but they don't really set screens like that. You know, with Kelly, the way he operates in offense is he'll come off those dribble handoffs. With Mikhail, he gets plenty of spot-up opportunities uh, in the corners, uh, or sometimes, you know, he'll, he'll just happen to be on the wing and he'll catch and fire. Uh, but it's just not 
necessarily something that's quite as frequently in their repertoire. So that's just an, a, another way that I think if you've got Aiton there rolling to the rim, pairing that with Dario who can pop out and is used to that kind of action, I think that makes a lot of sense on paper. But again, both sides have their pros. Really, the ideal would be if the Suns had a guy who was a true Swiss Army knife that could do it all. And in order to get there, you you just hope that Mikhail Bridges can kind of... Uh, build on the offense we've seen from him, at least in flashes over the past month, and become a more complete offensive player so that we don't have to have this conversation at all. It sounds like you're trying to trade for Kevin Kevin Love. No, I'm, but I'm not. <laughs> and I, Yeah, and I understand why it sounds like that, but I'm not trying to trade for Kevin Love because I understand that uh, starting Love at power forward, Aiton at center, would be an abject def- uh, disaster from a defensive standpoint. And for you know whatever Dario's defensive rating is over the past 10 games as the Suns have been losing games he is um a solid fundamental defender I truly believe that somewhere deep down there um and I think he's going to make fewer dumb mistakes than Love and I think his rebounding is almost where Love's is at this point quite honestly um so yeah I would I would rather have Sarge than Love so the next game is well for most people it'll be tonight against the Kings, the Sacramento Kings, again, feels like for the 10th time this season. What would you start? What lineup would you start in that game? I would start Saric. Uh, and because Sacramento's going to, yeah, I mean, schematically it makes sense. Sacramento's going to start Bielitsa at power forward. Those two match up perfectly. Uh, but but I, I like it doesn't matter so much what I would do. But I'm just curious to see what Monty does because that gives us the insight. You know, if he starts Aiton again against Nemanja Bielitsa, Bielitsa isn't really the type of guy who's going to run out in transition and give you too much trouble, I don't think. Really, Aiton would just kind of have to contest his shot from the perimeter, Um, maybe run him off screens a couple times, but he doesn't even really do that. Uh, But does it make sense to, to do that type of thing? Now, the Kings are kind of an interesting matchup this year. Because if you looked at the Sacramento Kings last year and what led to them being such a successful team, having that turnaround uh, was that they were led by De'Aaron Fox and they were led by his speed. And so then if you were going to go into a game like that with a team that pushes the pace so much and tries to get out in transition, starting DeAndre Ayton as your power forward and Baines as your center, and the thing that we haven't talked about yet is that that lineup, whether it's been uh, a slight positive or a slight negative to this point on the court, has been much, much slower than Suns lineups have been so far. Right. You know, they, they've got a pace right now. Again, small sample size, 37 minutes, but they have a pace of 98 possessions um, per game, which is uh, four full possessions slower than the Suns' average lineup. So this is a much, much slower lineup when you play those two together, as you would expect. Um, so if, the, if this was last year's Kings, that would be an easy way to lose the game because they would run you out of the gym. Luke Walton's Kings are actually kind of interesting in that they probably should be pushing the pace, but they're not. And that might be a direct reason why they're losing a lot of games. So you might even be able to get away with it. And maybe Monty's going to try it again. I don't think he should. I think the right solution against a guy like Bielitsa is to start uh, Saric uh, or Bridges. Um, but we'll see. I think he probably won't. And it's tough because some of the Suns beat reporters were, were posting sound with uh, Monty today that honestly kind of uh, was a little bit confounding <laughs> as to what he was really trying to get at. I don't know if you saw it, um, mm. but it, it didn't really clear up whether he saw this as um, a mistake that he was now going to go away from or whether it was the new style that the Suns were ready to embrace um, and that they just needed to kind of clean up some fundamental issues. So I guess we'll see what he does. I hate it. <laughs> If he does it, it's a problem. Here's, Again, here's everything sure. that everything that we've described it as 
is it to me it's what i think of okay. when i think of a, a a style of basketball that is long gone i agree you can't play slow you can't play less shooters you can't clog the paint on offense okay well, i hate all of that i i agree and i understand i'm about to hijack the conversation and talk about something else but i just want to get back quickly to something i touched on at the beginning of the episode the very beginning again what whatever you think the future production of that particular lineup is Let's rewind back to the Memphis game real quick. When Devin Booker left the game, he left the game for the first time with two minutes left in the first quarter. The Suns had been starting DeAndre Ayton and Aaron Baines up to that point. The Suns were up 26 to 18. Devin Booker re-enters the game six minutes later. There's eight minutes left in the second quarter. The Suns are down 37 to 40. That's not because of DeAndre Ayton and Aaron Baines. I just want to make it clear as we took, because we've devoted 20 full minutes to this conversation already. And I agree. I hate the lineup too. But that that I just talked about is a 22 to 9 run that the Grizzlies went on in the span of half a quarter because Devin Booker was not on the court, which to me is indicative of a much larger problem that the Suns continue to have that I know we've touched on before, but it's important to reiterate which is that the Suns can't generate offense without Devin Booker on the floor. And to me, that's a huge problem. Because if the Suns can't generate offense without Devin Booker on the floor, uh, that's going to lead to a lot of lost games. And that continues to be the case even when DeAndre Ayton is on the floor and Devin Booker is off the floor, with the idea that Ayton is going to be the second option. But so far, his offense hasn't come to fruition even when he's playing with Ricky Rubio, and that's a major problem as well. So I agree with you. Just to wrap up real quick, I hate the Ayton-Baines pairing too. Um, but there's there's a lot of issues for this team right now. So I, I, I don't know. I just think it's a little disingenuous to point at that one thing and be like, this is going to be the reason uh, if the Suns, not only if the Suns lost last game, but if they lose any upcoming games in the next couple of weeks too. Here's one thing I, I do want to clarify. The Baton lineup, the, the two of them on the floor together, is not something that I just hate outright in general. I feel like just the idea of talking about it online, there's like this rush of people to uh, kind of go over the top and how disgusted they are with yes. that idea at all, which I think is silly. Uh, I think there are times when it can be deployed properly, but I think there is like a psychological element of starting it where you're, you know, the starting lineups are just different. You're, you're making a statement about who you are, what your identity is and how you want to play. And that means that they should all fit together in a way that you want your identity to be. And if our identity is based on that, and I don't think that they want to play as slowly as they have. I don't think that they want to miss as many threes that they've taken or take so little threes. That's the other part mm-hmm. of it. They're not taking a lot of threes with those lineups, especially with Devin Booker sort of abandoning it almost entirely. Although he's, he's picked it up a little bit lately. We'll talk more about him in a minute. I just There's something about it being that starting lineup which just goes against how... It's it's everything that we didn't want Monty to be when he was hired, right? It's it's what we were worried about. And that's, I think, the point of this conversation now that, that we have to get to. I think that oh, over the course of the season, we've done a relatively good job of not totally overreacting about a lot of things. We didn't freak out when Devin Booker was playing badly uh, when, he, when he hurt his wrist. Uh, but let's just talk about Monty Williams. Do you, this stretch of games, now, I think it's important to say it's been two games, <laughs> really, that this that this lineup has played significant minutes. It's been two games, so it's unfair to 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 have this change. But w- what have you felt about Monty Williams through this? H- have your thoughts changed at all on him? Are you are you more worried than you were previously, <laughs> or or how do you feel now? People have high standards, man, because this Baton thing is the first time that I've really disagreed with the decision that Monty has made, and and him benching Sarich. 
um, consequently. It's the first disagreement that I've personally had with Monty Williams all season long. Uh, If we step back from that for a second and consider, again, it's been two games where, as I talked about, I think the matchups actually made sense. Uh, The Suns are still on pace to meet the realistic win goal that most of us had for them this season. Most of us projected 30 to 35 wins. They're on they're on pace for that. They're on track for that. And that's given DeAndre Ayton having only played six games so far. I have not lost faith uh, in Monty Williams to this point. Um, now, you know, do I think he's going to be coach of the year or anything? Maybe not. But I just think we need to step back and be a little bit realistic and look in the uh, look at the ingredients that he has to work with. I mean, in a lot of ways, this is exactly what all of the Suns analysts were saying about this team during the summer, kind of uh, coming to pass about uh, the Sun. What what did we say that the Suns' weaknesses were this summer? That they had no athletes. How do you yeah. think that that translates to the team's defensive scheme falling apart? Yeah, That's we a huge we part saw the Suns had success. In the opening 11 games, they started out 7-4. and four. Why? As Mike Prada, who came on this podcast the millionth time, we're going to mention that, but it was a great interview, um, detailed in his piece about the Suns early on in the season. Uh, it, it was that the Suns kind of made up for the fact that they didn't have the highest level quick twitch athletes, save for a couple of guys, you know, your Kelly Oubre's, your Mikhail Bridges's, um, made up for that deficit from an athletic standpoint by pre-rotating, right? Once the scouting report was out on the Suns and teams figured that out, They've been able to break down the Suns' defense to the point where the Suns are now increasingly trying to implement a switch-heavy defensive scheme. The problem is that they don't have the personnel to do it. They don't have the athletes to do it. You know, Ricky Rubio is, I think, a neutral defender at this point. I don't think he's what he once was. Devin Booker is clearly not there. Aaron Baines has been cooked and carved up, quite frankly. He just doesn't have the quickness to stay with guys out on the perimeter like a guy, to his credit, like DeAndre Ayton does. DeAndre mm-hmm. Ayton really does have some potential uh, on that end. But overall, most of, the, most of the guys on this roster are still bad defenders. And I think from a defensive scheme standpoint, there's not much Monty can do with those ingredients. And a lot of regression was expected. Uh, and we kind of just have to suck it up until James Jones gets better players. Yeah, and I think I, I wonder, because there were some comments from, from Devin Booker about, uh, I've been here four years, he kind of referenced. Anytime you point out how long you've been here, the implication being we're still not winning, it's, it's a scary thought. And I, I do wonder how much of this bad stretch recently, although there were a few wins in there that we haven't really talked about, uh, you know, I do wonder how much it's going to affect how they view the team building during this season, right? They, they have the opportunity to make some trades. They, they've looked at a lot of things. I think even if you look at the power forward as being the biggest problem, and I don't, I really don't. Like the more we've seen Mikhail Bridges play, the more we've seen Dario play, the less I'm worried about it. So I, the, the entire time you and I have been talking about having another offensive initiator, we yes. need that guy. And it almost doesn't matter what position it comes from. Ideally, it's a guard position uh, because that's that's what we need the most. We we talked about it at the beginning of the season. We don't really even have a backup shooting guard on this team as far as we can tell. Tyler Johnson sort of being a combo guard who's had some minutes recently but still fell out of the rotation uh, relatively easily uh, in the past. That's still the main target, I think. And, and you know, <laughs> there were some rumors about Kyle Kuzma being available. First of all, stay away from him no. uh, because he's going to demand a lot of money in free agency. I, I think Kyle Kuzma is fine. I think Can we just fine. quickly say though that the rumor currently, as it stands, is that the Kings would have to. The Kings yes. might be interested in Kyle Kuzma, 
but that trade talks would start with them offering Bogdan Bogdanovich. Exactly. That's the guy. And other future guy. assets, which would that's be... That's the guy. Oh, that's the guy you want. I was going to say oh, that's yeah. a joke. But yeah, yeah. if that's, well, that's a joke from the Lakers. But if Bogdan is uh, available... Is available. Yeah. Yeah. Yes, if Bogdan is available. And, and it, here's why. If everyone's wondering, why would the Kings trade Bogdan Bogdanovich? He's very good. He, he's their best bench player. He's probably the third best player on that team, depending on how you view Rashawn Holmes. Uh, but the reason is, is because he's going to demand, he, he likely wants to start, but even if he does not start, he wants money. He wants starter level money. And he's played in a, in a way that I think would actually make sense to give him starter level money. Um, Bogdan, he would be the exact type of guy that the Suns need coming off the bench, an initiator who can score, who can pass and does everything relatively well, plays well off the ball, plays well on the ball um offensively he he'd be the perfect guy and if he becomes available and if this is an indication that they are willing to trade him there is the question of how much would you be willing to give up for him because he would demand a lot in free agency and would you be willing to spend a lot in free agency for a guy that comes off the bench i think it personally i think he makes a lot of sense for a lot of reasons especially if you're looking at a guy maybe he's 28 this offseason for the record but if you're looking at a guy that can play really well off the bench and next to Devin Booker, he's one of those guys. That that would be a really effective uh, lineup, the two of those guys playing together. So if he's available, the Suns have to look at that. And yeah, I know we gave up him already. I, we I had was him. Say, the and jokes, <laughs> we gave up. The jokes would be relentless if it happened. Yeah. <laughs> hey, we, it happened with Steve Nash too. Uh, sometimes they come back. Um, so yeah. Any other thoughts on the uh, uh, DeAndre and Aaron Baines starting lineup? Dario Saric, Monty Williams, anything on that? Uh, no, I think we've basically covered... First of all, I like Bogdan. I'll just say my piece on that. He's a, a, a high-level secondary playmaker who can hit open threes or contested threes. You know, really, the, what's not to like about him? Um, Monty, I think we've basically covered. Do you want to quickly talk about DeAndre Ayton's offense? Since I feel like we spent a yeah. lot of time in this conversation talking uh, defensively. What have you thought about his offense? Through okay, I'm glad games? you brought that up. His offense, I've talked about it on this podcast in the past... I've never been super worried about it. Now I'm starting to realize that that uh, Igor deserves some credit there last year, as we talked about with what he's done for DeAndre Ayton. But the further we get into the season, the more concerned I am because he seems to be a little... Now it's everything that we've talked about for him in the past, but it feels a little magnified. He seems to be a little too attracted to the mid-range jumper. Um, he's not rolling like like I've asked <laughs> in our uh, pleaded. Uh, yes, I pleaded in in the New Year's uh, podcast with our resolutions, and he needs to be a little more aggressive and physical off the ball. Now, I will say I've seen improvements off the ball. I've seen improvements in his aggressiveness. He's setting excellent screens, and I think that's a huge part of what he can provide on offense. But as far as what he's doing to score. I hate it. I kind of hate it. I, I, this team doesn't need... There's really only two guys that need to take mid-range shots, and to his credit, he's one of them. But he needs to take them sort of as a last option, not first option. Devin Booker can take any mid-range shot he wants, and DeAndre Ayton can take about 20% of what he is taking right now for it to make sense. You realize if Eddie Johnson hears this, he will never come on our podcast. <laughs> I think we've already given that up uh, a little bit, probably. I think we have. I think we have too. Some of the <laughs> things we've said online. Now, here's what I'll say. I ran a basketball reference filter because I was curious. What happens when you take a lot of mid-range shots? Uh, and we know DeAndre Ayton doesn't shoot threes. 
So the natural consequence, if you're a center and you take a lot of mid-range shots and you don't explore your other avenues, you don't get to the free throw line. And we've talked about this with DeAndre Ayton before, but I think it's uh, important to bring it up again because he played 31 minutes last night against the Grizzlies. Um, as Jonas Valanciunas dropped 30 points from the center position for Memphis, DeAndre Ayton played 31 minutes and attempted zero free throws. Now, I looked on basketball reference. In the past 20 years, a total of eight NBA centers have averaged at least 30 minutes per game and shot two or fewer free throw attempts per game. DeAndre Ayton would currently, at the current rate that he's going, be a part of that list. Um, He's averaging 1.8 free throws per game in 30 minutes. The absolute best players on that list, again, past 20 years, only eight guys who started at the NBA center position. The absolute best, Al Horford, Marcus Camby, Martian Gortat, Nikola Vucevic. And the reason it's, those are pretty good players, but the reason it's important to bring up, when people talk about uh, DeAndre Ayton being a walking double-double, those kind of players that I just imagined, um, or, or that I just mentioned, is what I envision. And that's kind of DeAndre Ayton's ceiling if he doesn't wake the fuck up and start getting to the free throw line. He could be a decent player. Al Horford has carved out a decent career for himself. He's made the all-star team a few times. Marcus Camby was a very good defensive player. Marcin Gortat once averaged 15 and 10 with Steve Nash as his point guard. Mm-hmm. But he will never be the second option on a championship contender, which is what he was drafted to be. If he doesn't start putting some pressure on the defense, getting to the free throw line, opening up that spacing, you know, it is so abundantly clear that when DeAndre Ayton, and this is what I loved so much from him to give him some praise in the Knicks game, is that he was running the floor harder than I've seen him run in quite a long time. And it created these open avenues where uh, it sucked in the defense to the extent where guys like Kelly Oubre were getting wide open shots on the perimeter. You know, Ricky Rubio would push it in transition. A couple guys would sag off onto Ayton, who was running hard, and Kelly would get a wide open three. And that's what you want to see from from Ayton. It's so clear that defenses respect him inside, uh, and yet he still chooses way too often to do the wrong thing and settle for the mid-range shot, which we all know by now, regardless of what Eddie Johnson says, uh, is the worst, least efficient shot in basketball. And there's a reason every team is going uh, away from it. If shooting mid-range shots led to success, the San Antonio Spurs would be the best team in the NBA right now. (laughs) And they're not. They're having their worst season in over 20 years and that's indicative of, of that style of play. You have to shoot a lot of threes. You have to shoot a lot of shots at the rim. And you have to avoid the mid-range shot as much as possible. Now, I'm not one of those guys that says DeAndre Ayton needs to dunk it every time around. But I am one of those guys that says if DeAndre Ayton faces up and he's got a not good defender uh, across from him, like Valanciunas, for example, he should dribble at least once. <laughs> at least once. Use your quickness, use your frame, use your strength, and get a shot a little closer to the rim. That will draw more fouls for you, but also his touch is so good at the rim. It's so good. It'll bounce around and it'll drop in. He's really good at it. I don't don't need him to show brute strength on the rim, but I would like him to use his body against not good defenders. Now, I think there is an element of if he takes on like Joel Embiid, for example, and tries to dribble too much against him, he's going to struggle a little bit. So maybe shooting some shots over him and trying to get your offense more within the flow of the game would be better. 
But if they if they insist on giving him the ball and letting him create for himself, which is what we've been doing, uh, what the Suns have been doing so far since he came back, if they insist on that, then he's got to dribble. At some point, he has to dribble. And uh, he's not doing a lot of that. So um, I'm, I'm still not overly concerned with it for a couple of reasons. New system, new coach, new teammates. He really came into his own, I think, halfway through the season last season. He had some good games to start the year, uh, but he came into his own about halfway through the season because he understood the system. He understood his teammates a little better offensively. So I think we got to give him some time to see if he starts figuring things out a little more. And if he doesn't, I think there's nowhere else to point but at Monty at that point and, and, and question why uh, he's not doing better. So and, and, it, and I think part of it is he needs to have a real power forward next to him too, right? It yeah. can't just be Baines. No. At this point, I mean, those guys take up a lot of space. So, yeah, I think I think that's that's I'm a little concerned, mildly concerned, and I think it's something that we're going to have to monitor on this podcast. Any any other thoughts on that? No, that's that's about it. That's really just what I wanted to say on DeAndre. He still has a lot of the same issues offensively. Um look, he did he's done a lot of good, let's be clear, offensively to this point. He is um an offensive rebounding machine. Uh, and that's something, you know, to to Monty's credit, I guess, uh, the Suns out-rebounded the Grizzlies on the offensive glass 12-3 to yesterday. And that's the sort of thing that you get when you start two centers, uh, if you want to look for another positive in there. Um, but just DeAndre Ayton alone, if he was starting at the center position, he would continue to walk into offensive rebounds. He is an excellent guy on the glass uh, when his motor is running. Um, and he continues to be a good pick-and-roll finisher. I don't think the chemistry with Devin Booker is quite there yet. They've missed each other a few times, but the potential is definitely there. He continues to be very good in the post. Um, but I would say, if we had to kind of wrap it up, DeAndre Ayton is a better defensive, in my opinion, a slightly better defensive player based on what he's shown us this season. Yeah. And he's the same offensive player so far through six games. Yeah, I agree with that. If if not, maybe slightly not as good offensive players slightly worse. <laughs> that, honestly you could maybe even make that argument yeah yeah I, i'd say so let's let's talk about a few guys who are playing really well lately let's get to player of the week of the podcast they don't know anything about him they're too stoned nintendo i wish that i could make them He's just the player of the week. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Shout out to Corky Calhoun on Twitter for calling into the Hot Take Hotline and leaving Yo, that one on our voicemail. We'll, we'll play anything you guys send us. <laughs> as long as it's it's got, a, again, no acapella, but we've said it before. You send us a, your own Player of the Week cover. We'll play it at least yep. once. Thank you for the submission. Yes, thank you, Corky. If you want to call in to the Hot Take Hotline, something that we don't talk about enough on this podcast, it's open all we the time. We haven't used that thing. I mean, we use it, don't get me wrong, but we haven't had a, a real segment where we've no. played clips from it this season. So I think it's yeah. time, probably. We're long overdue for that. The phone number for it is 530-433-4368. Once again, 530-433-4368. You can call and leave a voicemail. I, I, we don't answer it. It's not set up to answer. It's just a voicemail. 
You can text. We, we actually get texts on that one at any time, 24 hours of the day. So if you're in another country and you want to use a Google voice line to give us a call or something, you feel free to do that. If you just want to text us about something that you want to hear us talk about on the podcast, uh, we can do that. Whatever you want to use this phone number for is fine. If you want to call and express frustration, if you want to call and give us a trade idea, whatever you want to do, just give us a call and uh, leave us a voicemail. We'll play it on the podcast or at the very least, we'll talk about it on the podcast if it's uh, if it's interesting, it has to be interesting, of course. Um, the the player of the weeks, the player of the week, the players of the week this week were obvious to Sam and I. We talked about it before the podcast. I said, I texted Sam and I said, "Do you guys, do you just want to split the two Booker and Ubre <laughs> because yeah, these are two guys." There was guys. no other option. There was no the, getting cute with some sort of you know trade idea. Yeah, we've done that a couple. It could have been Bogdan. I, I could have done Bogdan. <laughs> we talked about him anyway. Yeah, um, we but, did. But I'll, I'll just talk about Devin Booker real quick. Over the last six games, he's he's scored 30 points in a row, six games in a row, um, which is the most in Suns history. It ties Charles Barkley and a couple of other guys, and he has a chance to to beat that against the Kings and have the most. Um, in those six games, he's averaging 34, basically 35 points a game, three rebounds, and almost seven assists, which is insane. Those are like MVP-level numbers, assuming they'd be winning. Uh, and that's on 54% shooting, 22% from three, which is funny, and yeah. 92% from the free throw line. Not a lot of threes taken, especially in those first three of those six games, more in the past uh, few games. Um, there was a game where he didn't even attempt a three. I think it was the third 30-point game in a row. He didn't even attempt a single one. He's What he's doing from mid-range uh, is like unheard of. Now, you think well, of guys... You think of guys that are really good from mid-range. Um, guys like uh, DeMar DeRozan is the best example. DeMar DeRozan didn't really have a single point of his career where he's shot over 50% from the field. It just doesn't happen. It's just a very rare thing for someone like Devin Booker to do what he's doing from the mid-range. Closest I can think of in the NBA right now, CJ McCollum can do this for stretches at times. Yep. Uh, but I don't know that he's ever had six games in a row with over 30 points. Uh, very few people have done that in the NBA, especially at Devin Booker's age. For all that there is to complain about of this team for the past few games, Devin Booker is not one of those. He's been excellent, and I've really enjoyed watching him, especially for the last six games. So he's my player of the week. Yeah, he's been really good. People online are calling him Devin DeRozan, I think, a little bit. I hate it. <laughs> he's, be- he's better. He's better yeah. than that. Uh, but but it is funny, uh, I think. And and I think the three-point shot will come back to him. Yeah. Uh, so I'm not really worried about that. Yeah. He, he's been great. You know, I think someone who brought up a great point this week, as he often does, a very underrated Twitter follow, um, Dom Tesoriero. I think that's how he pronounces his last name. I'm not sure. I've never heard him say it. Um, but he pointed out that uh, he brought up Booker's touches because the NBA's website tracks the actual amount of touches that players get. During that rough stretch, just before this stretch, when Booker had uh, several bad games in a row, when he kind of had that forearm contusion-type injury that seemed to be affecting him, there was this four-game stretch where Booker really struggled. He averaged only 53 touches per game. Uh, Now you go back into the most recent games, Uh, Against the Knicks, he had 65 touches. Lakers, he had 62. Portland, he had 68. Golden State, he had 68. Sacramento, he had 76. Uh, And much more increasingly, we're seeing Devin Booker get into the mid-60s, the high-60s with his touches per game, much more than he was getting. 
Um, so that's kind of just interesting for me to see. I don't really know if there's a natural conclusion I draw from it other than that it's nice that the Suns are involving their primary scorer, you know, in the offense and getting good benefits out of it. Yeah, absolutely. And you had another player of the week, an obvious one also. Um, talk about Kelly Oubre. Kelly Oubre has been really good. I mean, he's been critical to a couple of the Suns' wins um, because, remember, I, th- I think it's been a lot of doom and gloom this episode because we're focused on the Memphis game, but the Suns have had some wins as of late, and Kelly was really important to the win over Portland. Um, he was really important to... What other win was there recently? Uh, the Knicks. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> uh, always always got to forget, just as we're recording. Um, but in his last five games, Kelly's averaging 24 points, eight rebounds, two and a half assists, two and a half steals, um, and he's shooting 54% from the field and 55% from three-point range. This is the big one. He kind of struggled with the shot a little bit yesterday. Maybe it would have been a different result if Kelly had hit a couple more threes, Um, but he has been on fire from three-point range uh, in this most recent stretch to the point where he raised his season average from 31% to uh, just under 36% in the span of like a week and a half which yeah. is really impressive for a guy who plays as many minutes as he does and shoots as many threes as he does. In fact, you know, Kelly's kind of being used at this point by Monty as like, I've, I've been hesitant to make this comparison to this point, but kind of like Sean Marion in the sense that over this stretch of five games, he's averaging 39 minutes per game. You know, there is no mm-hmm. other obvious energizer bunny on this team that just mm-hmm. never runs out of energy. The most uh, athletic player on the team. Most athletic player on the team doesn't run out of energy even after after he's logged 35 to 40 minutes. And clearly Monty, you know, these days in the NBA with what we know uh, about training and about injuries and injury avoidance, there aren't many players that coaches are willing to give 35 plus minutes to in the NBA. Kelly's averaging 39 over this most recent stretch without the Suns going into overtime in any of those games. Uh, And that's kind of really just speaks to the impact that he's had for the Suns as well and how much this team needs him right now. Yeah, he's been really, really good and vital to the, to the, I believe there was three wins in that stretch. So vital to those wins, uh, Kelly Uri was. And especially because not a lot of other guys have been playing really excellent offense other than those two guys. <laughs> so they've kind of carried the team. And I mean, at those stat lines, it makes sense that they're carrying the team, you know, combined, they're basically scoring 60 points uh, together. So that's very good for the team. And hopefully Kelly Oubre can keep it up. That shooting is probably unsustainable. Well, it is unsustainable if you think about <laughs> it as a 55% three-point shooting. But I just mean that increase in shooting to like that 36 or whatever he's at now. I hope that's sustainable. Uh, he's getting a lot of wide open looks, so you know that that makes a huge difference. But if he hits the threes, it's really difficult to defend him. It just is. And he's and if he can stay in, engaged on defense and he hits threes like that, I mean that's a very 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 valuable player. Uh, so you, shout out to those two guys. You also posted uh, the compilation from our oh, podcast yeah. account on Twitter of the amount of bodies that Kelly Oubre has caught this season. Yeah, he's dunking um, on everyone. He's everyone. dunking on everyone. Now, here's something I've been tossing around in my head. Did you see that Dwight Howard was invited to the slam dunk contest? Today? Yes. Yeah. N- yeah. Do who's you think, excited do you think about Ke- that? Who's excited about that? <laughs> I don't know. I can't imagine being excited. <laughs> well, the, the dunk contest has been stupid for years, but, you know, part of me yeah. is like, they, they wonder why ratings are down, you know? But um, <laughs> does Kelly deserve a spot? Do, do we think Kelly is a creative enough dunker? Because I think Kelly has this raw power to him. Uh, yeah. that he's really throwing down a lot of poster dunks right over the top of guys. I don't know if he has the creativity to be a good slam dunk contest dunker, necessarily. 
Uh, um, but I do, think, do you think he could take a spot in that? Well, I think I think that his his style of dunking is not like that. But I also think he's a very creative person in general. And if and if he had the time and energy to put into that to try and think of something insane, it would probably be insane. Maybe not athletically insane, but just like showmanship wise, he'd right, probably do something stupid and crazy. Well, because think about it back like the last time. Uh, no, sorry, Phoenix didn't host this All Star game, but all the all the way back in two thousand five, Amari Stoudemire was in the dunk contest. I remember because um, it was that night where. Uh, the Suns just had so much representation. You know, it was a 62-win amazing season for them. Steve Nash, Amari Stoudemire, Joe Johnson, Quinton Richardson were all involved in All-Star Saturday night somehow doing various things. Um, and Amari Stoudemire was put in the slam dunk contest, and he didn't win. But have you ever seen Amari Stoudemire do any dunk other than the same kind of boring, if we're being honest, one-armed, <laughs> one powerful, ferocious you know, elevates elevates and detonates, but one arm tomahawk slam. That was like you know the Statue of Liberty dunk. That was what Amari did. He dunked over guys, uh, and, but that was all he did. And they put him in the contest. So you know, I was thinking it over, and I was thinking if Amari can be in that contest, uh, Kelly probably deserves a look too. Especially if they're so desperate that they're looking at Dwight Howard. Um, <laughs> Kelly deserves an invite to that thing. Yeah, I don't know what the NBA's obsession is with adding old guys into All Star Weekend. Lakers, it's not. Well, old yeah, guys. that it's helps just... too. Lakers, but I mean, man. they had the Dirk, they and was it Dirk and Dwayne Wade? Their sort of yeah. legacy All Star. Well, thing. look, I get that because I think casual fans will actually be interested in that. Casual fans aren't interested in Dwight Howard. You know, Dwight Howard has had, and I realize we're going off on a tangent now, guys. But <laughs> Dwight Howard has uh, had a Hall of Fame career, no doubt. Uh, but a lot of people don't like Dwight Howard. I think even casual fans and aren't really interested in him. Uh, these days, except for people actually in the city of Los Angeles, who I'm sure would love to see a, uh, you know, an all-star game, one side captained by Alex Caruso and the other side captained by Dwight Howard. <laughs> yeah. And, you know, the, the, you know, the last note I have to talk about on this podcast is Eddie Johnson, just because I wanted to bring him up <laughs> real quick. And the funny thing about Dwight Howard, Dwight Howard's having a really good season so far for the record for people who haven't been paying attention and one of the main reasons he's having such a good season is because he doesn't post up at all anymore. <laughs> at all. He just kind of rim runs, plays defense, and gets rebounds. That's all Sounds he like does. Sounds like something a robot would say to me, Mike. <laughs> exactly. I, you know, and I think it's funny about Eddie at this point. I love Eddie Johnson, obviously. He's a son's legend for a reason. Um, and I've enjoyed his commentary for many, many years. But on Twitter in particular... He has become a parody of himself more than ever <laughs> this season. Yeah, he's um, a troll. He's, he's a troll. He's he is become just a, a troll. troll. He is a troll with a verified check mark, one hundred percent. And I don't blame at this point any fan of any opposing team, or even a Suns fan, because I feel this way all the time. But any fan of any opposing team who's like, "Oh, Eddie Johnson, he's he's terrible," you know, he's a troll. That's all he does, and he, I, he is more than willing to call out anyone who disagrees with him as a robot. I find it funny on Twitter because it's become performative, I think, a little bit. And maybe it's not. Maybe he fully buys into it. But I think he's playing it up for Twitter and kind of making it kind of jokey and funny. But I swear to God, if I have to hear about the reason that Devin Booker is good lately is because he refuses to shoot threes every single time <laughs> he shoots a mid-range shot in the game, yeah, that's driving it's, me insane. It's, it's overdone. It's too much. It's, it's too, too much. much. We don't need to hear about it, especially when they're down by 20 as the Grizzlies hit every single three on us. There's just like a logical disconnect there for me that does nothing but drive me insane. I don't want to see that over and over and over and hear it every single time. 
I love EJ too. I really do love EJ. I think he's really, really funny. (laughs) I think he's really, really funny. Did you play in the NBA? (laughs) Yeah, he's right. I mean, you can always say that. I mean, did you play in the NBA? It's true. I didn't. So shut the fuck up. If I was just like two feet taller, (laughs) I probably would have been fine. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, So EJ, um, cut it out. No, he'll, he'll never listen to this, so... Uh, you know, I guess we'll just have to endure it. It'll have to continue. I just don't understand. Like, I think that there is, so we're going to talk about the ratings problem a little bit again. This is a conversation on every freaking NBA podcast uh, that's out there, but somebody brought up the point that the NBA is not great at educating the fans. And that's one of the reasons that ratings can suffer. And for the record, ratings aren't really suffering. Just national TV games have been lower than they were at this point of last season, partially, I think, because teams like the Golden State Warriors are playing a lot in national TV games. And who wants to watch that? But if we are trying to point that out, this is like this is like some sort of anti-education. He's saying all the wrong things that actually make basketball teams good in the nba right now and and that's just not great i just don't i just don't like to hear it in games i think there's there's an element of if you read it on twitter and if you uh you're you're buying into it right you follow him if you want to follow him on twitter but when you're subjected to it when you're watching the games that's just a little too much i have to draw the line somewhere yeah i just don't understand i don't even know how to begin to solve the ratings problem you know the nba has a massive issue when the Milwaukee Bucks are 32-5 and five, um, the night that we record this podcast and are having one of the best seasons in modern history, honestly. Um, and how many times have you heard anyone say that this year? You know, they'll, they'll talk about individual stars. They'll talk about the season Giannis is having. They'll talk about the season Harden is having. Right. Um, but, you know, there are people working for Bleacher Report who would rather post about Alex Caruso than about the season that Milwaukee is having. And that's a problem for the right. NBA. Now, part of the draw for the NBA has always been the storylines. I've always linked it in some ways to um, being a hybrid of uh, a high-level athletic sport like the NFL um, and a sport that's also entertainment like WWE. You know, I think the NBA in many ways has been best of both worlds for a long time. But in particular, I don't know, there's there's also kind of this echo chamber on Twitter. It's like a lot of the people who are complaining about the reasons why ratings are down uh, don't fully grasp that they are choosing to be a part of this exclusive community on Twitter of hardcore basketball fans. Yeah, and what yeah. they want isn't actually what casual fans want. And um, yeah, how much should the fans even care that ratings are down in general anyway? Like, well, why, why should we care? I don't know. I mean, it matters how much you consider basketball to be your pastime. You know, I I used to think the NBA will never get to this point. The NBA will never be uh, more popular than football um, because football, there's only 16 games a year. And, you know, it's kind of this big deal that even casual fans are willing to sit down for every week. And the NBA will just never, ever reach that level in America. Um, But theoretically, if it could contest it, you know, and basketball is your favorite sport. I could see how there would be some pride in that. Um, but beyond that, yeah, I don't really know. Yeah. What? I just I just don't think that it's important for us to care about that really in any way. But, you know, it, it is, I think it's an interesting thing to talk about and an interesting thing to explore. I think that, that fans, that sort of general fans, right? We're going to watch every game no matter what. You and I are just fans ultimately. And we're going to watch every game. But the sort of general fan base, I think there's two things that they like. They like dominant teams like the Warriors, especially when they've proven themselves. You know, it gets better and the ratings got better and better and better throughout the Warriors' runs. 
And they also like young and up and coming teams. So like stars that are being crowned for the first time, like Luka Doncic Luka this Doncic. season. I yes. think that they probably draw a lot of uh, viewers. There's and not look, a lot of that this season. I think there's really just at, Luka. And then, uh-huh. And look at who's leading the all-star voting right now. Luka Doncic yeah. has more all-star votes um, than LeBron James. And that's not just because of the American audience. It really goes back into why the NBA is pushing as hard as they are uh, into proliferating markets in Europe. Uh, and Asia and Africa, even these days, you know, they're trying to promote right. these international players um, to the fullest extent because they realize that that's where a lot of their growth can kind of come from. They've grown potentially as far as they can grow uh, in the U.S. market. And I think the general attitude on the Bucks from non-nerds, right? If we're talking about the robots that listen to this podcast and, and you and I being robots here, it's easy to look at the what the Bucks are doing and say, this is unstoppable. They're definitely going to win a championship. If you just look at the numbers, that's kind of what it looks like so far. But there's an element of that's how we looked at the Houston Rockets a few years ago as well because the numbers were insane. And you know the Warriors were there at that time, so we had that to talk about. But I think there's an element of they have to prove it for us to all believe in them. And that means in the playoffs, Eastern Conference teams in general kind of have that feeling uh, just because that's kind of the East has been that way for a while. So I think the Bucks are not that sort of dominant team the way, you know, in quotes, dominant the way that we thought about the Warriors in the past because they well, haven't won a championship. They haven't been, they yeah. haven't had those massive moments where these regular guys like, um, you know, Andre Iguodala, not a regular guy, an all-star, but they become massive stars compared to what they were before because now six or seven million people are watching them in a playoff game have right. a huge moment. Yeah. So I understand. there's n- none of that yet. So I think that's I understand part what you're saying. But, but yeah, they, they just they don't have the marketable stars yet. You know, they have a, a solid core of good players. Eric Bledsoe, you know, whatever. They Mark have to Lopez, win in the Chris playoffs. Middleton, but they need to win. And people felt the same way about other teams in the past. You know, the Spurs, when they went up against the Heat, had these 65 win seasons, um, but they played in a way that wasn't conducive to high ratings basketball necessarily. I think the Bucks are pretty similar. Not, you know, not in the literal scheme of the way they're playing basketball, but are similar in that uh, casual fans aren't necessarily going to automatically tune in. Yeah, it's efficiency. It's efficiency ball kind of uh, two point. But wow, we really got off on some tangents. We never <laughs> do that. So you know what? I'm I'm fine <laughs> with it. The last thing I'll say on EJ, by the way, if we just circle back to him, yeah. is that you're right. He's not going to hear this. Um, and then a year from now, we're going to bring on Kevin Ray or Tom Leander or Lindsey Smith or someone for like the second or third time, um, and we're going to beg them for the contact to Eddie and we're going to reach out to him and he's going to initially agree to come on the podcast. And then someone's going to point him to this episode. Um, and that's when, that's when it's going to happen and everything's going to fall apart. Oh yeah. That will be awful. That that could be the only, uh, a former player that we ever have the opportunity to, uh, interview too. So TC Tom Chambers. <laughs> yeah. Tom Chambers. I want Tom to Chambers a- is exactly the, He's a great guy too, but you know, he's the same way he's he, and you know, I want to have, the, here's the thing. I want to have that conversation with uh, someone who actually has the perspective of being an NBA player, uh, even if they feel that way. I don't expect them to feel the same way about playing basketball as I do. I think it could be totally uh, illuminating to have that conversation about the importance of the mid-range shot because I don't think of myself as um, this robot that is incapable of changing my mind. Uh, you know, I am able to process new information and change my opinion as that information becomes relevant to me. And I do think that there are very valid reasons for liking the mid-range shot uh, in certain situations at the NBA level. Yeah, um, it becomes but, important yeah. in the playoffs. But uh, Eddie, in particular, has just eliminated a lot of the nuance out of the conversation. Yeah, I yeah, exactly. It's gone. 
My dream interview for Tom Chambers, by the way, is uh, I bring some microphones on my laptop to Marley's right next to the arena, and he joins me there and has a few drinks with me because I think that's the way to interview Tom Chambers if you're going to interview Tom Chambers. For uh, sure. Have a drink with him. Maybe he'll loosen up a little bit. Uh, Coming up, Sacramento today for most people, Orlando on Friday, and Charlotte on Sunday. Three potentially winnable games, but (laughs) none of them are easy. Um, The the, the Kings essentially have the same record as the Phoenix Suns right now. Um, They're they're playing right now. Actually, I think they're going to beat the the Warriors. So they'll have the same amount of wins as the Suns coming into that game. And then Orlando, that can be tough. Um, Jonathan Isaac. Sorry sorry about Jonathan Isaac, uh, Sam. uh, Injured, I think he won't be playing that game. And then Charlotte. Yeah, he won't. Charlotte is actually a relatively good team uh, in, in on a lot of days, so that's a team that can be tough. So I would say a good a good week would be two wins, two out of those three games. So we'll see if we come back to having two of those. Do you have any? Do you want to give any guess? Uh, I would like to say three and zero. I want to be optimistic. I love it, <laughs> and let's I want it. DeAndre Ayton to put things together. Um, but yeah, let's just keep in mind the Suns right now are competing with like six teams for one playoff spot. That's right. So that puts a lot of pressure on them. And I think a lot of people, uh, you know, if they want to stay in the playoff race, they need to win all three of these games. And if they lose any of them, a lot of people are going to freak out online. That's uh, right. Please be reasonable about that, even though I know you won't be. Good night, guys. <laughs> and if you're wondering, for the record, when there's Sunday night games, we might just be recording on Mondays from now on because it's nice to get all the stats from the games updated and <laughs> uploaded. Well, yeah, online. I mean, I, yeah, I do like that. I think it depends on, <laughs> honestly the result of the game you know if it was a win i think it's nice to give people and and this is one of those areas where if you guys follow us on twitter you can reach out and give us feedback um i think it's nice to give people instant content if the suns just won a game and i think a lot of times if like last night they just lost a game people are just kind of depressed and want to sink back into their holes and won't come out to see the light of day for about 12 hours or 24 including hours including me yeah including me and you at which <laughs> yeah. point you know we can work up the strength to have the conversation record the podcast so let us know your thoughts on that as well i think it's easier to have uh measured takes if you give it if you give it a day uh for me personally so anyway we'll be back next week that's the point of the end of this conversation we'll be back next week with another episode thanks guys for listening Sugar Ray Leonard, Roberto Duran, Marvelous Marvin Hagler, and Thomas Hearns. Legends, whose four-way rivalry defined one of the greatest eras in boxing history. Relive their decade of dominance in the new Showtime sports documentary, The Kings, a four-part series premiering Sunday, June 6th, only on Showtime. Shopify helps you sell at every stage of your business. Like that, let's put it online and see what happens stage. And the site is live. That we opened a store and need a fast checkout stage. Thanks, you're all set. That count it up and ship it around the globe stage. This one's going to Thailand. And that, wait, did we just hit a million orders stage? Whatever your stage, businesses that grow, grow with Shopify. Sign up for your $1 a month trial at shopify.com slash listen.